Welcome to another edition of Special Needs Jungle In Conversation With. Today, I have the privilege of talking to two remarkable young disability campaigners, George Fielding and Sienna Castellon. They have graciously agreed to answer some of your questions about what it's like growing up with a disability and what we as parents need to consider as our, as our children grow into adults. Firstly, welcome to you both and thank you so much for agreeing to tackle a subject that there seems to be so little information about. It's almost as though society doesn't want to recognise that disabled young people actually go through puberty too and have the same wants, needs, rebelliousness and questions that their peers do. So we really, really appreciate the fact that you guys are willing to sit and talk to us about this. So to start off, could you both please explain a little bit about yourself, your disabilities and how they affect you? Sure. So I'm Sienna Castellan. I'm a neurodiversity advocate and author. I wrote the Spectrum Girls Survival Guide, How to Grow Up Awesome and Autistic. Um, I am autistic, dyslexic, dyspraxic, and I also have ADHD. Uh, it took me a while to get diagnosed with all of those differences, but I'm incredibly proud to have them. And I really embrace all the positives that come with it and all the superpowers, I call them especially with my autism that has given me my love for math and physics. Hi, my name is George Fielding. I was born with cerebral palsy. I have been a manual wheelchair user since the age of uh, four or five. Um, and um, I have, in my career, been a, been a mentor to around about 500 wheelchair users across the country in my in in my role as the chair of the Board of Young Trustees for WizKids, uh, and and since then since then have um, grown to set up two social care organisations, the latter of which I I I'm involved with now. Amethyst is a specialist in transitional care for young disabled individuals, and I have always been incredibly proud of the identity that disability gives you um, by our very nature. I think like humans should be, but every, every person with a disability I've ever met has different passions and different skills. And um, having the ability to now for a living demonstrate my passion for, for supporting young people to have the confidence and the ability to, to access the society as they wish and, and see them flourish with me in the background and my team is such a joy. And um, what do you think are the key ways your disabilities have shaped your experiences as you've grown up, both the positives and the negatives? Yeah, so for me, um, my, as I said, my autism helped me with um, my love for math and physics, but there were challenges in that I was frequently bullied at school. Um, I had to go to 11 schools. Most of the changing was because of bullying. Um, teachers weren't accepting, students weren't accepting. Everywhere I went, I felt different and ostracized. And it took me a while to see that difference as a strength and the unique thing that makes me me. Um, and with all my learning differences, my dyslexia, my dyspraxia, and my ADHD, that made my school experience challenging at times. Um, but when it came to doing my own advocacy work, I found that all of those differences were strengths. You know, my ADHD and my dyslexia gave me all this creativity um, that helped me when it came to setting up my campaign, Neurodiversity Celebration Week. And my autism helped me with that logical approach, the timekeeping and um, getting everything on track. And George? In, in, for, for me, I have always been blessed, I think, with a maturity. Um, I have always been able to liaise and communicate with adults and change makers because actually I learned that if I didn't speak for myself and, and assist others to speak for themselves, then arguably no one was listening. Um, so that's the negative. I think that my entrepreneurialism and my love 
for creating and listening to people with disabilities comes from a distrust and and a distrust and and i having realized that distrust now understand that i have the pressure and a privilege of being hopefully the individual that people with disabilities and their families trust um you know but but that maturity has also come at a cost um the i i don't feel as if i've ever met a young person that is like me um and that and and and, and that and that is a difference um it's, it's, it's a difference that people see and and hear on a, on a day-to-day basis but as but, but as you grow older and are, and are given more opportunities to articulate your vision and and stamp your uh, foot on society and those you work with it does become a strength that's really interesting so actually it's it's um it's kind of a, a gift and a curse i guess then and do you think that it's actually society uh, and the way they deal with you then that makes sort of some of the negatives as opposed to actually there being a negative with the disability itself i think that people with disabilities have to oh i certainly did learn to spot those that wanted to change the system the innovators the, the the communicators, the change makers, the disruptors, um, because indeed <laughs> they are the people that I had to liaise with and, and my peers have to liaise with in order just to live the life that we want. And Absolutely. For you, um, have you found that the most disabling thing is sort of people's attitudes around you then? Yes, the most disabling thing is societal perceptions. Um, And that's something that has really been highlighted in lockdown. So I've been staying home and I've been able to create my own environment. And so the lighting, there's no fluorescent lighting. There's only lighting that helps with my sensory processing difficulties. There are no loud sounds or um, anything that gives me the anxiety that I would get when I go into unfamiliar environments out in the real world. And I haven't had any sensory panic attacks in the last year. Um, for reference, I would have them almost daily when I was, um, you know, living living life, you know, going to, to work in person, using public transport multiple times a day. And it really helped me to realize that a lot of the challenges I had came from living in a world that wasn't designed for me. Um, living in a world where when someone did the blueprint for a building, they didn't think, okay, how would an autistic person feel with all these glass doors and all these reflective surfaces? Um, and that was what was giving me my anxiety and my challenges. But when I've been on my own, I've been able to control my environment and give myself the adjustments that I need to be successful. I've had no problems. Um, it's all just been positives of my neurodiversities. So actually it's helped you learn a little bit more about yourself and sort of the environment that you work best in. Yeah, it's been a very empowering experience Mm -hmm. because when you're out, um, you know, especially talking to neurotypicals, you know, they just see all my differences as disabilities, um, as problems. And I've always felt like they're superpowers. And it's been great to have that reiterated most kind of experiment that the last year has been with COVID. Okay, let's move on to the sticky subject of puberty. No pun intended there. Um, so we all know that growing up and going through puberty is, you know, pretty horrendous for most young people isn't it um but you know there is a fair amount of support out there for young teens certainly at school um you know looking at sex education and pshe um you know looking at body positivity and healthy living and things like that but do you think there's enough to help disabled teenagers prepare for this period of their lives and if not what do you think could be improved yeah i mean i think that especially for autistic girls there's not really enough 
specialist support. Um, I mean, I feel like, unless throughout the education system in general, um, autistic people, neurodiverse people aren't included. If they are, it's an afterthought. It's just kind of like set up programs for neurotypicals. Um, and that means that you find that in PSHE you discuss dating, but you don't discuss it in the detail that maybe an autistic girl needs. And so they end up being taken advantage of by neurotypical boys who see the relationship as a game when the autistic girl, you know, doesn't have the social communication skills as maybe the person that she thinks she's dating. And so she doesn't realize that this is just another form of bullying. Um, and those kind of discussions don't occur in the school environment. And it's up to the parents to support their children through that. And then a lot of resources on it. And so you frequently find that a lot of people, a lot of neurodiverse people have challenges in that time in their life. And that was kind of what drove me to um, write my book, The Spectrum Girl Survival Guide and include a chapter on dating. Mm. So do you think it's something that schools actually need to pick up on and um, perhaps deliver more sort of autistic friendly PSHE lessons to everyone? Or do you think it's something that needs to be targeted towards um, uh, young people on the spectrum specifically? I generally believe that when it comes to neurodiversity, um, making a lesson neurodiversity friendly um, actually helps neurotypicals as well, because there might be a neurotypical in that class who um, maybe also doesn't have good social communication, but they're not autistic, and they could really benefit from having that social communication really thoroughly dissected and explained to them. Um, and that goes with a lot of things like, you know, with my dyslexia, I like things written clearly on the board, not in this <laughs> squiggly handwriting that makes it difficult to copy down. That was something that I found challenging as a dyslexic, but there were other people in the class who didn't have that difference, who also just found it challenging. And so I find that um, making work accessible, making classes accessible to neurodiverse students benefits everybody. No, I completely agree with you. And I think that you're absolutely right that actually making any kind of education more inclusive helps everyone, uh, you know, universally. And uh, yeah, George, what's your experience? <laughs> well, I, I, I would, again, wholly endorse everything that CNO said. I, I, I believe that there is a angelic purity that that society assumes that people with disabilities have, you know, um, and and that and that doesn't that that doesn't help in kind of kickstarting the conversation around sex relationships and and. And puberty. So I have never desexualized disabled people, isn't it? Oh, the I, 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 of being I, I, disabled and having a sex life is something that people can't cope with. Well, it, 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 um, and and you know, and if it is tolerated, you know, or discussed, the assumption is that your partner. Your, your sexual partner will also have a disability mm. um, or be a carer. Um, or be a carer indeed and and that 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 is very much I think still still the case sadly uh, and and I, and I would also say, you know, on the back of that, whether it's an environmental barrier or an attitudinal one to, to, to people with disabilities having relationships, there, there, there is a lot of harm that is caused by the suppression of, of human desires and human feelings. 
um, brushing. Did you have, did, how did you learn about kind of like, you know, what sex would look like for you or, you know, what some of the challenges might be, what some of the things you would need to think about? I mean, did you have any kind of resources or help or anyone to talk to? Um, well, well, they, there, there are two, there, there are two, there are three organisations that I think speak on this particularly, particularly well. Um, all of all, all of which I, I, I admire and 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 were, were the source of my education. But but you but 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 it was it was to fi- to find them on the internet was a was, you know they weren't resources given to me. So that was kind of disability hits your horizons that is the online magazine uh, founded by Martin Sibley that's always had a fantastic section on on sex and relationships there is the um, there is the actually the designers and the sellers of sex toys hot octopus are are are, are an organization and actually that, that I think they became inclusive um, by default in 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 the sense that their first product, um, the feedback for their first product was 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 from a, was from a man with a kind of spine injury, um, and 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 so they designed their product without really realizing that it, that 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 it kind of helped, that it helped people with disabilities and. And the last one is an organisational campaign called Supported Loving, um, which is a much more um, kind of social care specific organisation. But but they are the only organisation I've really heard of or worked with that offer specialist uh, training for people with learning disabilities um, on on sex and relationships. Um, but the likelihood is the vast majority of people listening to this and the vast majority of people out you know out on the world will, will never have heard of those organizations um and and it you know i'm i'm, I'm 26 now and I, and i and i really do think that it took me until very recently to publicly and proudly endorse what I'd, what I'd learned and seen from those organisations, um, I, I, I also do think that in living our lives as we wish, there isn't much privacy anyway. Mm. Um, that or 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 there isn't or or there isn't much privacy to to support work. That is done incorrectly. The, 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 you know, that, um, so, so, the 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 fine line, I think, for me, was actually realizing that, you know, I didn't have to keep my relationships private. And also with with um, sort of teenagers, privacy is, is a huge big deal. As you go through puberty, all of a sudden, your own private space is really, really important. Um, and for parents of disabled children, especially those who need help with their personal care, this can be a real struggle to get the right balance. Um, so what would you say the ground rules that parents should respect if their child needs help with their personal care in their teenage years? What What sort of message or you know tips can you give parents to be able to respect that privacy when they're obviously also going to be sort of dealing with their personal and intimate care at the same time yeah I mean I would say definitely having a conversation with your child I mean especially within the sphere of autism where there are sensory processing challenges that can arise um, hygiene can be very difficult. I mean, it just takes walking into Superdrug and looking at the shampoo bottles to see how everything's, 
you know, fruity blast, um, pomegranate cocktail, or like all these really strong smells for the shampoo, strong smells for the conditioner. And then if you want like a body wash, everything, some kind of strong mint or fruit. And that was something I really struggled with, um, just the sensory element of it because I'm very sensitive to smells. And so it took really having conversations and this happens like you know with a lot of autistic individuals where you have to find products that work for you and until you find that those products it can sometimes appear that you might have a hygiene issue if you're struggling to wash your hair and having parents who don't stigmatize that and instead try to problem solve like um, my mother for instance um, I had a very difficult time brushing my hair because growing up I had very long hair that would get very knotted and it would really hurt to have to untangle all of that. And so she helped me by, you know, we had a conversation about it. And from then on, I just kept my hair short so that I didn't have to worry about um, that kind of challenge. And just the problem solving element, I think is something that a lot of parents should adopt instead of the stigmatizing one where, oh, well, why do you have such knotted hair? Your hair looks like a bird's nest. Not focusing on that, focusing on a solution. And George? I, I would simply, not, not simply say, I, I in, the, in, in, the, in the personal care that I've had delivered to me, it's either, it's always been on a direct payment. Um, which means that I, or my mother in the earliest cases, is the employer um, and the decision maker. Uh, I, that you, you can't, that, you know that it is it is the most intimate kind of of customer service personal care um and i i i think that that is the beauty and the joy of it is that is that when there is a comfortable relationship like that it it it, it is, you know, it is it is one built on trust, and it is and it is one that can truly transform an individual's uh, self confidence. I think I've always realised that not to be depressing or morbid, but my parents won't be around forever. Um, the, the, and so, so that there's, there, there has always been a kind of, what's my backup plan? Um, what, you know, who, and I, it has always been incredibly important to me that the relationship I have with my family is one built on friendship rather than contractual duty or service. Um, I think though that, that it is very easy for parents to slip into the assumption and the belief that it is healthy and right for them to carry on. Give, you know, the, the, there is a, there is an inherent pressure, I think, in the delivery of personal care uh, to a younger person that it is it is probably true that no care provider will know that young person better than their parents. But does that but that but that, but that doesn't mean the parents are the best providers on a day-to-day -day basis and also I guess by um working with carers you're you also 
learn more about yourself and how to ask for help, which I think can be, you know, quite a difficult thing for children to learn if you've always got a, a parent sort of there caring for you. It doesn't kind of give you the space to actually learn, you know, what you can do by yourself and actually how to ask help. Well, 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 this is the reason that a lot of a lot of providers are not good at transitional care services. You can't really go from any kind of residential campus environment, whether it be a college or a school or or a home, into your own flat overnight. It it doesn't work. I think we need to be honest with ourselves that people with disabilities they they develop at different rates, different times, but 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 also um, the assumption that at sixteen, at eighteen, at twenty five, they've learned all the skills that they need to be independent is a misguided one because like turn 18 and that's it you've got it you know know, so 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 in terms of the work that i do i still proudly call myself an educationist right because because there is because there is some because actually true transitions and true developments into independent living are phased and they happen at the right time and and the skill is in knowing when and knowing how to feed in and phase that skills development into the transition into independent living. I do also think from a a parent's point of view it's about remembering that privacy is a right. And even if you are um, looking after your child's very personal and intimate care, they still have a right to privacy. So it's like setting ground rules, like always knocking before you go in. You'd always knock before you go into any other teenager's room. And, you know, just because you're, you know, perhaps doing very intimate care with your child doesn't mean that they don't deserve that same privacy it's, it's a right as, as far as I see it and certainly around puberty because we all know how self-conscious young people can be about their changing bodies um, and I guess that leads me on to the next question which um, you know, when you have a disability and you perhaps feel different to your peers that can be quite overwhelming in an age where you just want to fit in um, so how do you think parents can encourage their child to love who they are uh, if they're starting to dis, uh, to view their disability in a negative light? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important to empower your child. I mean, for me, when I went through the school system, all I ever heard were the negatives of my differences. Um, when it came to dyslexia, I just got constant grief for my spelling. You know, with my dyspraxia, um, sport teachers hated me. Um, I was always coming home crying after every sport lesson because my sport teachers would say horrible things to me. Um, ADHD, I mean, teachers would call me, you know, a space cadet. They'd say, oh, you're just not paying any attention when I was really trying. Um, And so I would always come home with these negative ideas of my neurodiversity. And with autism, that was amplified because I was bullied for my autism. Um, and my mother did a really good job of just trying to keep me on track and try to keep me focusing on the positives. And it took me a while to really embrace that message. And it really, it took my neurodiversity work as well and all the research I did. And I started finding all these positives that nobody told me. When I was getting diagnosed, people didn't tell me. When I was at school, people didn't tell me things like um, with ADHD. There are more theta waves in the brain and theta waves help with deep relaxation. And so in fields like surgeons, firefighters, police officers, this is surprising, but astronauts, 
there are a really high percentage of astronauts with ADHD. And it's all because those are areas where you need to keep calm under pressure. And individuals with ADHD have that advantage because of these theta waves in their brain. And that was something that when I found out, I thought, that makes complete sense because of all the, the neurodiversity work that I do. It can be stressful to get up on stage and to give these speeches. And I was able to manage it in part because of that side of my ADHD. Um, and there just isn't enough information out there to give people the positives. And so I think that as a parent, it can be incredibly helpful to research all of that and to focus on differences and not so much focus on the disability aspect. And George, how, how what, you know, what do you think? I was very lucky that both my parents work full time. <laughs> I'm not saying there's not there's anything wrong with you know with those that don't but, but when I reflect on it that was the route I think to to my self-discovery that actually my parents didn't have the time <laughs> to to advise or keep an eye on me actually what they what, what they soon realised was and it is still true to this day is that I'm a very compulsive um, instinctual person um, and they my parents have always respected when I've made my mind up. Um, and, um, and, and, that, and they have never questioned that. Um, my, my parents have always understood as well that I am at my best when busy and when not thinking, when, when not overthinking. Um, uh, I didn't go and see my university apartment before I moved in. I didn't discuss it with my parents before I moved in. I just moved in. Uh, um whilst knowing that they were always there kind of 45 minutes away and 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 would pick up the phone when 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 at when and if I called but 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 there were there but there was a certain sense in which I as an individual have always Been, been able to be my own sounding board. Uh, do, have you, in the same vein, always viewed your disability positively, or have there been times, and certainly when you're going through puberty, um, and perhaps more aware of others around you, have you ever found yourself actually viewing it negatively, or has it always been kind of something that you've completely felt comfortable with? My biggest realization, Renata. I think so in some way we are all disabled because and there's a universalism to disability what 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 I meant by that is whenever whenever I'm working or speaking to somebody I am able to spot not in a negative light, but in a positive light, what their weaknesses are and the things that join us together. Now, 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 why do I say that in 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 answer to your question? Um, I, the, we, if 
if it is if it is environment and society that's the problem then there are examples that you can use to articulate what it means to be disabled so that others can relate because because if you put my sister in a room full of spiders i'm a much better person than she is you know because she has a phobia uh now now but but really that lens that way of seeing the world helped me understand my own humanity in relation to others uh and actually the fact that if i'm strong in believing that in some way everybody is disabled then then in some way we all have our own weaknesses and our and and our own struggles our own desires our own emotions it sounds very much to me like um your family setup gave you quite a lot of room to kind of like be a team basically to to find your own way sienna what about you do you feel like your parents got the fine line between support and mollycoddling rights for you do you feel you had the freedom to make mistakes and you know to learn about yourself and to experiment with things and, and things like that yeah i definitely made a lot of mistakes looking back um, when I was younger and newly diagnosed because I was diagnosed as autistic when I was 12. And so a lot of kind of the beginning of my teenage years was spent figuring out how my autism affects me and playing around with different adjustments and different ways of adapting my routine um, to make life easier for me. And my parents really helped me do that. Um, from my mother's perspective, she always treated me like an adult. And that's something that um, I really appreciate because I think that it helped me embrace the maturity that I had. Um, but it also meant that now that I'm 18 and I've moved out from home, it didn't feel like it was this big change. Like all of a sudden I was becoming an adult because my mother always treated me that way. Um, she let me make decisions for myself and it was very much you guide this and I will support you along the way but you make those decisions um, you know she told me you know you know your autism best you know what works for you and so when I was in the school system for instance I would tell her kind of what reasonable adjustments I needed and why I needed those and then she would go into meetings and she would ask for that for me but there wasn't this element of her deciding on my behalf what I needed. Or talking for you. Yeah. And I think that that was something that really helped me growing up. And actually mm. that leads me on, on to the next thing I want to talk about, which is uh, social media. And you know, a lot of parents rely on social media to be able to talk to other parents. And it's a very healthy way to find tips, ideas and to share experiences. But there's actually been quite a backlash recently from the actually autistic um, sort of like movement on Twitter uh, who say that parents with autistic children shouldn't be allowed to talk about autism because they're not the ones living with it and so only autistic people should be allowed to talk about it. So what do you both think about um, sort of this rise in parents talking about their children's disabilities online and do you think it's helpful or harmful and what things do you think that we need to sort of take into account when we're talking about our children as they get older? Yeah, I think that there is a split. So there's some communication that is incredibly productive and helpful. Um, I'm an autistic woman. There's not a lot of resources for autistic girls online. And I found a lot of what helped me through mom's net, actually looking at what other parents were posting. But what I was looking at was incredibly productive. Um, I remember one post I read, I was like, I struggled to brush my teeth. That was something that always stressed me out. And I had no idea why it stressed me out. And somebody on mom's net said that they got their child to switch to a toothpaste that didn't have mint in it. 
and that they were now able to brush their teeth because the problem all along was this really strong taste of mint. And so I went and I got toothpaste that wasn't flavored. And I've never had a problem since with brushing my teeth that hasn't, because I used to really resent doing that. And that was advice that I found from Longstaff. That was advice that I kind of had to find there because there were no other resources. And so I don't want to bash people doing that. What I do think is inappropriate is parents that overshare about their child's life. You know, if the idea of infantilizing autistic adults is something that I think shouldn't be happening on social media. You know, if you have a 20 year old adult, you would ask their permission before sharing their life story and intimate details of their life online but they see it as because I'm maybe the carer of this person, I have permission to share all of this private information. And I think that that's something that has no place on an online platform. And also neurotypical parents making value judgments about autism. Um, when you look at a lot of the Autism Speaks campaign information, it's a lot of neurotypicals making autism out like a disability that needs to be cured. Um, because they're just looking at it from this very limited point of view with all of the misconceptions and stigmas that come from living in a society that is ableist. If you were to get a group of actually autistic individuals, individuals like myself, who are really empowered by my autism, we wouldn't all be campaigning for eugenics and for autism to be cured. Um, and I think that that's something that I really struggle with, that and that is hard for me to understand at times that the loudest voices within the autism community are people who are not autistic. And that's something that needs to be corrected. And George, what's your take on it? I, I again, completely agree with Sienna on, on the, on, on the idea, I I think that there are certain things and certain boundaries and certain things you can't you 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 shouldn't share on on social media. I especially especially in especially in a caring role. Um. I I worry that whilst we talk about the fact that the the, the democratization of social media of, of of media, the fact we've all got our own platforms, and you know, as a campaigner, that's fantastic. But but there's something societally wrong in the fact that for a lot of people with disabilities and their families, social media is the only platform that they believe works. You know, um, all that they have, you know. Um, I, 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 I therefore believe that the overuse of social media, where it is overused by by parent carers is actually a demonstration of of desperation quite a lot of the time of of the fact that actually a lot of the ordinary channels or the channels that we expect to work in favor of people with disabilities often don't. Being a carer is something that people ought to be very proud of. Um, you know, um, it and because it's because it's because it's very human and often a very selfless thing to do, and 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 it's something that deserves a lot more rewards monetary and otherwise, um, and a lot more recognition. Um, 
but but being a carer, being a parent carer, can't be the only thing you do. I mean, both of you, you know, you, you both have achieved amazing things in your lives, considering, you know, I know, Sienna, you had a very difficult time at school, um, and now you're off to Stanford University, which is amazing. I mean, George, you've got a British Empire Medal. You're a prolific public speaker. I've spoken with you at a couple of events. You're a fundraiser and campaigner. Sienna, you've won awards for your advocacy. You're a published author, founder of the Neurodiversity Celebration Week. I mean, you both have achieved so much. Um, do you think... So like use, you've used your experience as disabled young adults to achieve these great things. And um, you know, what would you say was the hardest part of dealing with a disability as you're growing up? And how, what, what helped you turn things around to become these amazing advocates that you are today? Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely something I struggled with when I was younger was the societal expectations were put on me and the stigmas and misconceptions around disability um something that really was a turning point for me um was adopting a more strength-based model um at school there was this big focus on identifying your weaknesses and spending all your time and energy trying to improve those areas and so i would go home and spend hours practicing my spelling tests and practicing my my sport because teachers were constantly telling me how awful it was at that because of my dyspraxia and it was just a system that was obsessed with identifying flaws and so every day when I would come home from school it was just weaknesses that I could see in myself and I would try to change them but you're never going to no amount of time that you dedicate to working on your spelling is going to change the fact that you're dyslexic. That's just the way that your brain is shaped. And I reached a point where I decided that I'm just going to give up on all those weaknesses. I'm just going to let them be weaknesses and instead dedicate all my energy towards harnessing my strengths. And immediately my mental health improved because I was seeing progress in a way that I wasn't when I was practicing my sport with a motor coordination disorder. Um, and that was what got me, I guess, if you call it success or what I've achieved now. I mean, getting into Stanford to study mechanical engineering, that was me spending my time and energy on math and physics, the areas that I'm passionate about, the areas that I'm good at, instead of spending my time in English, because there's no way I would have been accepted if I marketed myself as someone who was good at English or history, because that's not my area. Um, and so adopting that strength-based model, and that was something that actually went through into my advocacy as well, just looking at the skill set that I have and how I can best utilize that um, and finding platforms that work for me and finding, you know, areas that don't work so much, areas that I struggle with, and then just deciding, okay, well, I'm not going to do that side of the advocacy then. Um, and now looking at where I am at this point. I still can't spell, I'm atrocious at sport, but I don't care because I have um, all these talents that I use on an everyday basis and that I really embrace and I'm proud of. That's a very, very powerful takeaway. And George? I'm, 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 I'm still absorbing what was, I think, very close to perfection in, in terms of in, in terms of Sienna's answer there. The greatest thing that I now have is that I take ownership of my own brand um, and my own identity. Um, uh, I, I'm very proud of everything that I have done and that I do. Um, but but actually there is I can speak very eloquently about how I am very dis have been very disenfranchised about through systems and structures. Um, my school didn't want me, you know. I I I had the the best thing about my school was that it was close to a 
train station so I could escape to London, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And, 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 you know, and, and, um, you know, I, I have never really been able to claim the statutory support that I could have done because I haven't wanted to waste my time picking up the phone and, and speaking, speaking about myself for myself. Uh, the, 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 what, what, but what, but what I have realized and i and, and what I believe, you know, is quite powerful is that there is a fine balance to be made between working in the system and and using your story to change practice i i believe uh, that i actually that that actually five ten years ago I was just happy being the campaigner and the mentor and the fundraiser with the megaphone more and more now I want to put the megaphone down and get my hands dirty and it takes a lot of confidence I think to, and this is something I'm proud of, to actually on a day-to-day basis be engaging in the system that disenfranchise you, that hurts you. Um, I, I, I wouldn't have had that before. I wouldn't have had that before. Um, so I have been able to transfer, transfer that hurt And that disappointment into a professional job and demonstrate that actually those that I care for will not principally and value and through my own values, they will not experience the things that I have done. But in order to do that, I've had to have conversations with people and of the nature that I may not have wanted to five years ago a huge thank you both for you know agreeing to talk to me about this and being so open and so honest um we hope everyone's found it really interesting and informative um if there are any other areas you'd like us to explore further you know we don't mind exploring the difficult topics or if you've got more questions for either george or sienna do let us know, um, you know, because we can always do another video if I can persuade them to give up some more of their time. Um, but for now, thank you so much, guys. We really, really do appreciate it. And we hope that people have got some useful information out of it. Thank you.